everybody, and welcome to Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest is a returning guest, Joseph Rosenberg. Joseph previously was on Attendance Bias to discuss one of the best fish shows of all time, December 11th, 1999, in Philadelphia. Today, he came back to touch on another huge high point of Fish's career, and that was the Lemon Wheel from August 15th and 16th of 1998, Fish's third large-scale festival. Now, as we've said before, covering an entire festival would take a huge amount of time, so Joseph was able to kind of narrow it down and cover sets two of each day. So today we're covering just two sets total out of a six-set festival. Joseph is a major fish nerd, so you'll hear him go deep, we'll go off the rails, we'll just kind of go on sidetracks, but it always comes back to this major fish festival in a unique time period in Fish's career, 1998, where they were kind of coming off a major career year and before things started getting a little bit more confusing toward the end of 1.0. But I don't want to spoil too much of it. Let's get right into it. The Lemon Wheel with Joseph Rosenberg sets two of each day from August 15th and 16th, 1998. Joseph, welcome back to Attendance Bias. Hello, Brian. It's been a pleasure, and it's hard to believe a couple of years have gone by already. I've started to come back around to previous guests who have more stories to tell. And when I go back to check the website, I really can't believe that it's been, at this point, two and a half years since our interview, but just about two years since the episode aired, because there was some lag time in between. But man, two years in fish world, that's an eternity. The hiatus felt like a million years, and that was only 18 months. All of 2.0 lasted less than two years. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we we colloquially and jokingly refer to it as one big year at this point. Yeah. Um, it's been one big year since since we sat last. And uh, I'm glad to see you're happy and healthy and, and still here doing this podcast. It's been really fun to watch and listen to the evolution of, of the entire thing take off. I remember obviously being there in the very beginning when the whispers and the rumblings of this podcast origin started to take place on our special message board that Damon talked about. And, um, and then to see you here, you know, over, well over 100 shows later is, uh, is really exciting. And I'm, and I'm happy to be a part of it again. Well, I'm happy to have you again. Uh, for those of you listening, I'm sure you figured it out by now. But Joseph has been on the podcast before in the early days, where he covered December 11th, 1999 at the Philly Spectrum, arguably the show of that year, excluding a certain festival we could mention, uh, but certainly worth going back to listen to both the show and the episode. So if you haven't yet, you know what to do right when this episode is over. Uh, Joseph, we learned a little bit about you last time as a fan. So now it's time for the double second time around attendance bias lightning round. Attendance bias lightning round. So you told this story briefly on your past episode. So if we could wrap it up in a minute or less, when was your first fish show? My first show that I actually went inside and and did the whole thing um, was just a couple of days ago, the 25th anniversary. It was 12-12-97 in Albany, the first night of a two-night run there. It's an incredibly special show. A, a crew of us have been streaming shows for a couple of years. Once Fish stopped their dinner in a movie, we kept doing it on Tuesdays. And so come this March, it'll be three years we've been doing it together. And just um, last night, just last night, Tuesday, we did 12-12. And um, it's a very, very underrated show. Uh, that set two might be sleeper set of the tour. Uh, 
absolutely bonkers Piper and, you know, a uh, short list of one of the best Caspians ever. Trust me, go listen to it. Go have your mind blown. And so those two nights, the 12th and the 13th, were my first two uh, fish experiences. And what was your most recent show? And what did you think of it? My most recent show was, shoot, I didn't see any shows in 22. They didn't make it easy for us on the West Coast. They didn't come out at all. Nah. Um, so this is going back to October of 21 when they did two nights um, in Eugene. And one of the nights, might have been the first night, opened up with a, a really long 25 or 30 minute down with disease, which ranks among some of the long uh, top two or three longest show openers ever of all time. And I had a really great time there. I am a little bit more of an evolved fan at this point, obviously. And I kind of, uh, what's the word? I temper my expectations for how maybe the band will blow me away. But I went with a crew of people I love. I've been seeing shows with for 25 years. We went old school. We rented a big Airbnb and we all stayed together. There was like 12 or 14 of us in the house. It was really great. Um, and Fish did what they always do. They made me want to see them more. Right. If you walk out feeling that way, they've done their job. Yeah, for sure. And I was obviously not alone in my in my disappointment in them not announcing any dates west of Colorado for the entirety of the year in 22. Uh, but there's rumor that maybe they'll be out in Bend next summer. If you could snap your fingers and have fish play at any venue in the world, regardless of size, regardless of accessibility, anywhere, they're playing a show for you, Joseph. Where do you have them play? Wow. Instantly, like, I don't know why this popped into my head. But for some reason, the very first thing that, that jumps out to me would be the Sydney Opera House. Oh, wow. What a great um, call. Y'all know that building, it's unique architecture and, and where it sits geographically. Also, I've never been. So I think that that would be a two for one. Um, I, I just imagine that would be a pretty spectacular and forgettable experience. Selfishly, personally, I love the island of Maui. And if fish were to ever play on Maui, I would, I would make that a, a something I would absolutely have to do at all costs. Right. We'd have to do kind of um, an alternate history and go back to 1999 and make those rumors come true that they were going to play sure. New Year's in Hawaii. Right. But since this is a show just for me, I'm probably only inviting 10 people and we'll all be able to get there for sure. We can fly in the same plane. So. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> Private chartered plane. Exactly. Seems doable. We'll get fish to play Maui for me. Yeah. yeah. All right. I'll get on the phone right after this. Yeah. You know, um, people, let's make this happen, Brian. <laughs> What overall, pound for pound, what is your favorite fish cover song? Wow. Wow. Pound for pound, favorite fish cover. Okay. I'm going to go with something that's probably pretty popular and, and, and not um, super off the cuff, but it's probably cross eyed and painless. It just seems like when that song pops up, uh, good things tend to happen in that set. And to me, that's, that's what I'm looking for to fish show is those little indicators of like something special is about to happen. I feel like cross-eyed's pretty much a part of special shows throughout its history. I agree. And my favorite thing about cross-eyed and painless, especially in a second set, especially as a second set opener, speaking of those, my favorite thing is when they play it, because you know, you're going to keep hearing it throughout the rest of the set because they tease it everywhere and anywhere when they can. Sure. And um, I mean, you throw on any 97 or 98 tape and chances are somewhere in there, Trey is, riffing on a little bit of cross-eyed mm -hmm. somewhere um yeah. it would pop up it wasn't even noted on set list because it became so ubiquitous i feel like um where that and super bad i feel like you were 
pretty confident to get at least one of those two cheeses on any given night throughout like 1997 or 98. And so I was always there for that too. Send it. I remember I did a fact check for, I forget which episode it was, but I looked up the most teased fish song and I knew it had to be, had to be cross-eyed and painless. Like what song is quoted the most. Mm-hmm. And when I looked it up on fish.net, it was second. And I couldn't, I don't think the f- number one part should count. Number one was. Can I take the, a guess before yeah, you say it? Yeah. Okay. I would guess San Jose. Nope. Okay. It's Dave's energy guide, which I don't think should count. Sure. Because that was something that they teased maybe every night through 1986 through 89. Maybe. And, and anything could be Dave's energy guide. <laughs> oh, goodness. So um, I love that, though. I love the yeah. old school throwback to Dave's energy guide, because let's yeah. face it, that's not something people talk about anymore. No, no. At no all. You, have to, you have to be real nerdy like us to even know what the <laughs> yeah. fuck that even means. So this is a two person conversation right now. <laughs> uh, no, there's and, people out there that are like, yeah, Dave's energy guide. They're talking about it. Yeah, we're talking <laughs> about it. We see you. If you could hop in a time machine and go back in time to witness any fish moment, either on stage or off stage, where or when would you go? Wow. You could be a fly on the wall anywhere in their history. I think this is such a tough question. So are we talking like musically or just anywhere? Either way, you could be in the middle of a conversation in the band room, or you could be at a show that you did not attend. Oh my goodness. Okay. Um, again, I'll just go with the first thing that popped into my mind that we're just going to do like Rorschach style here. Yeah. Um, it's a lightning round. The first thing that, the first thing that popped into mind was, uh, seven, eight, 94 set one closing divided sky where he, Trey is just sending it and he's just, his guitar is just rippling through. I I wasn't there, but I, I can like feel it. I can like tap into it. I feel like sometimes, um, after, that was obviously in the end of the, the game henge set as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, this was one of the dinner and the movies that they released. So we were actually able to see it. So I was actually able to visually see Trey. So maybe that factors into. Uh, but that is an incredibly special moment where they just destroyed game henge and the divided sky is eccentric and and just uplifting and outstanding all the superlatives. And then they end the set and they take a break and they come out and they deliver, you know, maybe one of the best sets the entire summer. So yeah. um, that moment of the peeking out of divided sky just before a deep breath and coming out to deliver that monster set too. I think that would be something I would really like to experience. Finally, what is the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? The weirdest thing. Um, I know you like to ask this question and I didn't prepare for any of these, um, but I did a I did consciously and mindfully think about this one as I was as taking a walk with my dog earlier this morning. And I don't know if it classifies as weird. I might take it in another direction. And I couldn't remember if it was in Philly in 99 or maybe it was in Vegas in 2000. But there was a moment at set break where people had been throwing a Frisbee around on stage and the Frisbee ended up on stage. Uh, they were throwing it around out, out in front of the, on the floor section. And one of the techs came out and picked up the Frisbee and I just happened to be watching this. Who knows what you're focusing on at set break, but I happen to be focusing on this one tech who saw this Frisbee and he takes a few steps back and he's, he takes like a little running start and he like launches this throw <laughs> from the stage. And it, I swear to you, like it goes all the way down the center of the arena to where somebody's in that back hallway, like directly on the other side of the arena and like catches it. And the whole place goes absolutely bonkers. <laughs> now, I've asked a number of fans at both of these shows if they remember this and nobody does. And so I challenge your listeners to either 
corroborate my story or disprove my fever dream if this is something that did or didn't happen, but I have a memory of this. And so while it's not particularly weird, it was one of those moments where I will never forget it happening. I just hope that it's real. Anyone out there who was at either 12-11-99 or what was it? Uh, September 30th, 2000 was that, or the 29th? I think it was the, I think it was the 30th. I think it was 930. I think it was the Trey's birthday show the night where they played Forbins, like right before. That right. Set. Right. The webcast. The I'm show. pretty sure it was that night. So who remembers? So if you remember, remember Seth Drake, on this. and you saw a, you know, maybe hundred yard Frisbee catch call in as if we have phones. <laughs> yeah. In a further, in a further updated section, I would love somebody to reach out to you on one of the socials or Twitter or something and, um, and say, yes, that either did happen or no, this guy is bananas. I'll, I'm, I'm comfortable with either one, Brian. <laughs> when was this show played? So let's talk about the summer 98 tour uh, today's show, which, oh my God, I forgot to even bring up which show you're here to talk about. We are here to talk about lemon wheel. My goodness, Fish's the Lemon Wheel. The Lemon Wheel, Fish's third large scale festival, uh, at least as we've come to know them. You know, if you avoid Amy's Farm or Ian's Farm in that sec in that uh section, that type, at the Loring Air Force Base, the second one. So, as usual, when it comes to festivals, it would take, I think, way too long for a podcast episode to cover all of a festival. So Joseph was generous enough to kind of pick his spots. And right now we're going to cover the second set of each day. And that would be August 15th and 16th, 1998. It closed the tour. Is that right? It did. It closed the tour the last two nights. And uh, Limestone is a destination to be seen for sure. (laughs) Yeah. It's a destination to get to also. I feel like we could talk about fish in 1998 for at least an hour we don't have that sort of time i think most people see it as the summer of covers Uh, i don't see it as any i didn't see any shows on this tour but i do remember following the set lists on fish.net every morning i would wake up and see what they played the night before maybe gadiel's page actually is more likely Gadiel. yeah it seems like they began a joke by covering sexual healing on july 20th at ventura and then they followed it up a few days later at Starplex Amphitheater in Dallas with Albuquerque by Neil Young. And then it kind of caught fire where every night they would play a different cover, including but not limited to If You Need a Fool at Riverport in Cincinnati, uh, Been Caught Stealing in Alpine Valley, I Get a Kick Out of You at Deer Creek, Rhinoceros, God bless, at Deer Creek, Running with the Devil at Lakewood, uh, Sabotage at Merriweather Post, and It peaked, I would suggest, with Terrapin Station in Virginia Beach. And what I heard recently, I forget where, is that they might have been on another podcast, actually, is Trey was saying that when the band was eating dinner backstage with catering, that they would always have music on in the background. And it was just kind of a random playlist, even before the word playlist was even a word. And they would decide, one band member would say, we're going to play this song. And it didn't matter what genre it was. It didn't matter who played it. It didn't matter if they knew it or not. But they would pick a song out of the dinner playlist to play either that night or the next night, which kind of accounts for why it's so random and varied in terms of genre and artist. What do you remember? Super interesting. Super interesting, man. Like, I haven't heard that podcast or that interview, but that that is really insightful as to some of the selections they chose. Like, obviously, between... Albuquerque and running with the devil and ramble on, you know, and, right. and rhinoceros and sweet Jane. 
debuted that summer, I believe, as well. Right at, at, at 88, 98. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, just between the summer of covers and then, of course, on every fish poster and just like all throughout the summer, there were the whispers and the hints of the ring of fire, fish to play in a ring of fire. Like who knew what that meant um, until the lemon wheel, right. you know, it all kind of came together. Um, but those are my two memories of uh, the tour extra that would be out on fish lot that would give you some of the set list updates. And, and of course, just uh, uh, the word of mouth from the fans because people were, people were on tour in droves that summer and everybody was pretty hyped up and, and, and feeling pretty comfortable talking about it. Whether you were new to fish, I was relatively new to seeing shows in, in 98. I didn't see my first shows until late 97. Or if you were an old timer, um, you could roll up to anybody and, and just spark up a conversation about set list construction or, or uh, jam styles. And, and that was one of the best things about fish was that if you wanted to include yourself, you never really had to feel like an outsider. Somebody was there to, to talk to you, to, to tell you a couple of stories and then hopefully help you create a couple of stories of your own. It's hard to picture, even for me or or Joseph, who were there, to go back to a time where you did not have instant access to a set list. You know, we did not have phones in our pockets. The internet was not available anywhere and everywhere. You might have had to go into the local library in whatever town you were in. You know, if you were on tour for three out of five shows, but you didn't go home in between, you might have had to stop somewhere in Internet Cafe, which still existed in 1998, and pay mm-hmm. a couple bucks to go to Andy Gadiel's site or fish.net or whatever it was to find out. And then to see something like Rhinoceros by the Smashing Pumpkins, it would blow your mind. It was a good Certainly. time to be a fish uh, fan. Oh, my goodness. And and we talked about Rhinoceros a couple of times this podcast. And I'll just say if they ever want to bust that one back out, I, I'm all for that. <laughs> like. <laughs> that that was a one and done, and I, I'm not totally surprised. As a lot of those, a lot of those tunes that summer were were one offs. But um, but anyway, if you're listening, fish, bring rhinoceros back. One time, please. <laughs> Let me ask you, what shows did you go to in addition to the Lemon Wheel this tour? I saw two. Sh- I saw two shows just prior. I saw them. The aforementioned Merryweather show on eight eight ninety eight, which um, is kind of taking on a, a borderline legendary status. There was a Tila that night which Teeler was rare by the 98 and obviously a second set that had an enormous 2001, a really, really great Piper. Uh, one of my all time favorite Pipers that night. And then what a lot of people will remember is, uh, is the sabotage. Mm-hmm. Um, that was boundary breaking. Like that was fish was playing whatever they wanted all summer long. But I mean, that was something that I don't think any of us considered we were going to see them do. Uh, and, and with the accompanying like mildest version of a, uh, mosh pit you would ever see but <laughs> yeah. it was definitely fish fans thrashing beyond the level of what a big black furry creature would elicit yes yeah, something about that sabotage and i know we're here for the lemon wheel although it was played there right so we're not we're not yeah. totally off track something Mm-mm. about it is that as random as these show these uh covers were it should be noted that fish for most of their career up until now still don't play a lot of uh, recent songs, a lot of modern songs. I mean, they've played Golden Age starting in 2009. That is like in real time, so to speak. But in the 90s, they didn't play a lot of their contemporaries' music. So it was mm-hmm. a big deal. And the Beastie Boys, I mean, talk about a popular favorite. Who doesn't like the Beastie Boys? And Sabotage, seriously, that whole album, that's on Intergalactic, right? I mean, that was a, I think no, it was on Sabotage the, is on Sabotage. Ill Communication. Is on- Ill communication. All right. Yeah. So that's going back to 95 ish. Right. 
I'll do it. I'll do it on the fact time. check. But yeah. it was a bust. It was a huge major hit. It was a bust out is what I meant to say. Oh, yeah. Shocking is all I can say was my reaction to that. Um, <laughs> and just really excited to be there in the moment and then to have it pop up a couple of days later when I was there with some more of my friends and some of my oldest friends in the world were all at the Women Wheel when they played Sabotage to open set three on the second night. I was able to experience that with them. One of my friends specifically was really big into the Beastie Boys. And I, I'll never forget the look on his face when they played it because having played it just prior, a couple of days really before the Lemon Wheel, a week before, the chances of them busting that one out again, we, we probably felt like we're pretty slim. But yeah. uh, the band wanted one more go at it, you know, at least. And I think they played it one more time. I think they played it in the Hampton Comes Alive box. They did. Like you know, and they but, played um, it more recently in 3.0, although oh, they maybe. played it with uh, with like a vocal effect on the microphone. I don't know if um, if Trey has it anymore to just kind of scream the lyrics in the way that he used sure. to. You know, we can get into the weeds. Was that the S show maybe or one of the, um, you know, I'm trying to think. Uh, they played it during the was... S show at Dick's. Right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. Um, or I was thinking that or Baker's Dozen because they played a lot of crazy covers during the Baker's Dozen. I feel yeah. Like too. Um, Had so, you yeah, been and, Oh, no. And I was going to say the only other you asked me a question, the other shows I saw and I saw one other show. Unfortunately for me, I didn't go south after Maryland missing out on Terrapin Station. So pour a little bit out for me if you have some in your glass. right now. <laughs> uh, I'm just kidding. I'm not looking for your pity. I've had a really great fish experience. Uh, I did go on to Star Lake um, where they opened up with Trenchtown Rock. And oh, that's such uh, a great. Oh, that's I feel it. My and bones I, when I time loves it. a hero, I think, was busted out that night, too, for the first time in a really long time, maybe like 800 shows or something. Um, and then the second set opens up with a just a monster runaway gym that needs to be heard by everybody. I'll leave it at that. What are your impressions generally about Fish's sound in the summer of 1998? Because on this podcast, we've covered 1997 up, down, left, right, inside out. Not much can be more can be said about it. 1998 seems like a kind of more of an under the radar year. And certainly the summer isn't really compartmentalized the way fall 97 would be or August 93, where you say a month and a year or a season and a year and like instant sounds come to mind. What are your comments or memories of the of Fish's overall sound in the summer of 98? You know, and I'll start off by saying it's really interesting. I remember watching the, the evolution of your podcast, and there was a there was a few folks that wanted to talk about summer '99 shows during like maybe the first twenty five or thirty yes. episodes you released. Yes. Um, and as I was listening back to this, uh, these Lemon Wheel tapes, um, tapes, there'll always be tapes to me, Brian. Yeah, it's um, they're all tapes. I'm, I've got my tape player listening back to the Lemon Wheel tapes, <laughs> um, <laughs> Burning Nog Champa, you know, the whole thing. This summer. I, I like to play more than in the summer of 99. And I, I did the entire tour in the summer of 99. I saw all 21 shows and I only saw four shows in the summer of 98. But there's like that maturity, that evolved sound really from the hybrid of like what they were doing in late 96, which maybe was the tightest period the band had been since like 92, arguably, um, that late November and into the holiday run in 96 is just like some amazing, fantastic playing. And then 97, obviously, they loosened up the collar, uh, loosened the tie, if you will, and and kind of let structure dissipate and really just went with vibe and feeling. 98 is kind of an amalgamation of those two things. Um, you could still get uh, a cow funk section like the Tweezer and Lemon Wheel, for example, where it can definitely break down, Trey can go wah heavy. 
but they'll also be more focused jams. And you can really start to hear that in the Island tour. Um, so summer tour is really kind of continuation. The band clearly had an idea of what they wanted to evolve their sound to be. They didn't want to be 1997 forever. And you can hear that in the ghost songs. Like if you listen to any of the Europe summer 98 stuff prior to the American tour, they're playing a lot of those ghost songs every night and they're not dropping deep into, you know, 16 B 16 measure funk jams with the start stop in the middle. Of course they're still doing that, but their shows weren't focused around that. Uh, they, they were a little bit more melodic and um, they were opening songs up in an ambient vein uh, that was really on, that was, you know, the fourth set of the lemon wheel was the kind of the, the, the pinnacle of, their ambient stylings where they unleashed on us. Like we've been working with these themes for the better part of six or seven months. And we're going to play a 51 minute freeform set for you. <laughs> um, that this whole summer, like there are, there are some long jams. There's some long tweezers, like uh, the California love tweezer, for example, like it's, it's loose, it's got some funk, but it's got a little bit more direction. And, and that will be how I describe fish's sound. Whereas they were still out having fun every night. They were doing whatever they wanted. They were in complete control of their ability and their dynamics. They could shift on a dime. They could bust into a cover you didn't see coming. They could bust into a cover they didn't see coming. Uh, <laughs> and they were also very danceable without the ambient nature kind of putting people to sleep in the crowd. And yeah. uh, and 98 is very special for that. 99 is a bit more chaotic. 97 is a little less structured. And 98 is just a sweet spot. And you can't, you can't really talk about 98 without talking about Trey's guitar tone. To me, as a fish fan, I don't think it gets any more perfect and clean and precise than the the rig and the structure he had going on during the summer of '98. That's to me that'll always be Trey Anastasia. Yeah, I agree. I didn't see a lot of shows in '98. Uh, I was pretty young. I didn't have a car, and so I had to wait until they came back around to Madison Square Garden and see the New Year's run. And when you talk about the the kind of ambience that the to free it, the way you said it is that would possibly put some members of the audience to sleep. That New Year's run has a ton of those starting on December 28th. I think it's Wolfman into Carini or Carini into Wolfman. I can never remember which comes first, but I think it's, it's Wolfman's. Yeah, yeah, I think it Carini. is Wolfman's into yeah. Carini. I remember that being the first time I asked myself, wait, what song is this? Or what song mm-hmm. was this? And so yeah, I agree with you that this summer of 98 was the sweet spot where they could literally do anything they wanted, almost in like a cubist form, where you could look at it from any angle and fish could pull from any part of their enormous history, stylistically speaking, and present it to the crowd in an entertaining and polished way. It's It was a great time to be a fish fan. I'll say it again. <laughs> yeah, it really was. Um, it's been scientifically proven by me and my <laughs> small cadre of analytical nerds that I hang out with every Tuesday night that, we think fish maybe hit their peak powers on four four ninety eight. I'm just stirring up the controversy a little bit, but um, yeah, there is something to be said about fish hitting their their peak of capabilities of what they were able to do while also delivering some of the best music you've ever heard at the same time. Uh, Might have peaked out in 1998. Um, well, let's dive. Into that's the another fest- conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's dive into the festival itself. The Lemon Wheel, like I said at the beginning of our conversation, the third large-scale fish festival, the second at the Loring Air Force Base. Had you been to any uh, – were you at the Clifford Ball or were you at the Great Went? No, no. My first show wasn't until Fall 97, so this was the largest musical festival I'd ever been to. Um, I'd been to one other sleepover 
festival party in my life in Vermont. There used to be this thing called Bread and Puppet, which I'm sure some fans listening, especially those from the Northeast, will remember Bread and Puppet. And that was like a a weekend sleepover with, I don't know, five to 10,000 people. Maybe it's hard for me to estimate. Of course, 65 to 70,000 people blows that out of the water. And it was my first sleepover musical festival. And and looking at some of the pictures that I took from that weekend, um, it was easy to see that I did not have my uh, accommodations dialed in. We didn't bring an easy up. We put our tents in the middle of the sun. We didn't bring nearly enough food or drinks. Uh, you learn all these things as you become a seasoned yeah. festival goer. Uh, all the rookie being, mistakes. Yeah, oh, we, 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 we committed them all um, and still had the best time of our lives. <laughs> set one. So day one, uh, the 15th, set two, opens with The Wedge. And I wanted to ask you, because I didn't realize it, nowadays, Fish's festivals tend to be three days with two sets apiece. Back then, including it in 2.0, it was two days with three sets each day, plus, of course, the quote-unquote secret set, which is a pretty badly kept secret. Uh, what time did set – was it three sets in a row or an afternoon set and two evening sets? Do you remember the structure of the of the layout of the playing? I want to say they started around like 4 or 4.30 in the afternoon for set one. Um, I remember that first day, the sun was out, the clouds were you know, just like – really beautifully in the sky and it was warm enough to wear shorts and a t-shirt during the day. You know, you're pretty far up there in, in rustic County. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm from Maine pretty much. You know, my father's from Maine and I, I spent some time there growing up as a kid in the summers. I'm sure a lot of people listening have been, but just to, just to, you know, accentuate how far of a drive it was, even from being in Southern New Hampshire to start the trip, it was still almost a seven hour drive. You get cold at night. Uh, so you make sure you bring your sweatshirt in with you and your backpack. But in the afternoon said it was, it was all smiles and, and hugs. We had got in the day before. We got in early on Friday. We heard the sound check and everything. Um, and then had the entirety of the day of Friday to explore the ground, set up our rudimentary campsite. Um, and so the set one starts probably middle of the afternoon. And, you know, just quickly, of course, everybody knows they opened up with mics and they end the set with Week of Pog. And it was like an hour and 45 minutes. It was like a big mics group sandwich, which is lovely. Great cities in there. Trey with the digital delay loop, pausing, try to, I think he makes a comedy. He's trying to get everybody on the Ferris wheel sick. Or <laughs> oh yeah, he does. Uh, he always, he, he pretty, loves the Ferris wheel train. I know. Yeah. Totally beautiful. Uh, little dialogue there from our boy. Um, and then set two, I want to say, you know, set one went four to six, it probably started around a normal show time, probably around like seven 30 or eight o'clock. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's getting dark by that point in August, yep. that, that North and Maine, bring your sweatshirt in with you and wedge opener. Yeah. Let's go. It seems like a good way to bring people, quote unquote, back into the show, like a mid-tempo, old-school sing-along that doesn't really go anywhere, but that's okay, because we're just kind of bopping our heads and getting back into the Fish concert. And then they follow up the wedge with Reba, which is played at a pretty brisk clip. You know, I know you said that the last time you saw Fish was about a maybe two years ago, coming up, or a year and a half ago. Reba, Fluffhead, songs like that are not played as fast as they once were. And it just reminded me how much better Reba is when it is played fast. Certainly. And I would like just to take a second to note that the wedge was incredibly special, obviously, because there's the word limestone in the lyrics. And oh, that's right. And that's so right. it never the, occurred to me. And so there's obviously the big cheer there. And I'm I'm pretty sure they played it at the went also. Um, I don't have that set list up in front of me, of course, but um I'd be willing to bet that they played it at the Went 
because that's totally their kind of inside joke. And then when they played it at the wheel again to open up the set, uh, I remember there was a pretty big cheer uh, from everyone around as they sing about Limestone, which is, you know, a pretty special moment. Um, and then Reba, Wedge Reba to start set two of night one. Yeah, here we go. Um, the Reba is pretty standard, uh, but it's kind of tapping into what we were talking about a couple minutes ago about Fish's sound uh, mm-hmm. in that particular time period where it is tight. Like one thing I, I think I kind of took for granted, I hadn't listened to the lemon wheel in a long time to tell you the truth um, is that they are, they have their shit together. Like, oh, very much. Yeah. you know, there's that famous scene in bittersweet where Trey's like, we played a bad set, like set, set one to open up the festival or whatever. And then they, and then they pull together like that. But this fish was different. This fish was a little bit more dialed. They were, they were not going to, make mistakes of the past they were going to come in ready to execute and they did and, and this reba while being you know 15 or 16 minutes or something like that it's not like one of the wildest 1994 rebas you ever heard but it didn't need to be uh they were capping the energy of the wedge opener and just getting everybody you know pretty amped up for the ride of this set which you know this set was very high energy and very sharply executed and love that about fish that they were able to not drop a set entirely of 97 funk grooves this set right. went a different direction outside of the tweezer um it, it's they, very soft there are parts yeah. i wrote down at about 10 minute that they are not in a rush to get anywhere or they're not in a rush to get aggressive or loud it play like syncopated jamming it's the way i wrote it and this doesn't really make sense to me even though i'm the one who put it down that there's this cool jamming that's like a 15 second oasis away from like the usual typical reba that we expect it takes a left turn and then they go back into Reba. It's, I don't know. There's this very soft playing by page, especially that speaks to what we discussed earlier about having this kind of mix of good groove, but with a side of ambience. Um, and I know the, the moment you're talking about having just listened and it, it almost sounded like they had discovered a doorway and they yep. poked their toe in and decided not this time. Yeah. Cause they have two more sets to go, including this one. Right. You know, and <laughs> there were Reba's in our past, you know, in Fish's past where once they stick their toe into the door, that door is blown wide open with no regard for anybody's feelings or, you yep. know, emotions where they are, they, they are, uh, more tightly focused and, and, um, and really well-oiled, you know, that's, that's the way I can describe Fish's playing at this time period at the end of the summer was they were just so completely locked into each other. And talking about locked in next up was gumbo. 
And my thought was from all notes and its reputation, it seems like I should prepare to hear one of the best versions ever when I started this track. The, the Fishnet jam charts, this is from them. They describe it as, quote, Manteca-like jamming to start, then slowly a tweezer reprise jam develops, and once it peaks, it breaks down into a fun, danceable jam with a segue into sanity. They do good work over at Fish.net. They do. They do for sure. There are parts where the, that, the second jam of Gumbo posts the tweezer reprise teasing segment um where it's uh it kind of sounds like a little bit sludgy like they're starting to that's a little bit more of like what would come out of 1999 fish and so you're starting to see the evolution you can see the evolution and hear the evolution of the band over the next like 12 to 18 months like a lot going on in this gumbo of like where they were to where they are now through the tweezer prize to like maybe where they're going to be in in 12 months time um and it's just like really heavy. There were there were parts where I felt like I could see myself like stomping around. trying to think where I was in the venue during this set. I think I was on Mike's side for the show. I wandered around almost entirely the first day just looking to meet new people. Um, and that's, that's the best some... way to do a festival, though. Oh, it's so great. Exactly what I was going to say. When you're at a festival and you talked earlier about the band was taking the approach of we've got all the time in the world for this. That's how we were approaching it also. Uh, we're young. We have all the time in the world. Fish is on fire. Uh, and and the gumbo is great. Uh, yeah. It's not like the best gumbo there ever was. Like. I feel like if you go into it expecting that this is going to be the best gumbo you ever heard, uh, you could be let down there. Um, I can think of a couple off the top of my head that I really enjoy. Um, but this gumbo for this set really kind of sets the tone for the next like half an hour of music that's about to happen, including the gumbo. Um, as, as the fish.net review stated clearly, it breaks down into sanity, which is a real segue. You know, um, yep. It's a beautiful segued sanity. I came prepared with a question for you, Brian. Um, okay. Between 1993 and 1998, that is, you know, six calendar years of fish playing shows. How many times do you think they played Sanity? Well, I know they played it in 96 at, was it the Halloween show? Maybe it was or, Sanity right? Highway to Hell. And maybe it opened that show. Yeah. I know they yeah. played it then. I'm just going to do a shot in the dark, say maybe three. Four. Four, okay. So 
all of 1993 to the lemon wheel, there were only up until the lemon wheel, there were only four sanities during that six year period. So for them to jam into sanity out of gumbo in the middle of this set two on day one was really special and quite a throwdown, honestly. And I don't know if I realized it in the moment. There were definitely people around me that were losing their shit and rightfully so. The sanity delivers. Like it was, I remember having a point during the 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 real like the boom pow, the first boom yeah. where the lights turned red and just like having a sense of like borderline terror. Um <laughs> and that's like that's like the dark fish that we talk about that's like really uh enticing to some folks and and I'm here for those moments. I, I would rather the entire show and set not be like that. But for for something like this, it really hit the spot after Reba and Gumbo had set the stage. And so we're talking Wedge, Reba, Gumbo, Sanity to open this set. That's a set list I can get behind. Yeah, that's a power set list. Yeah. I have a, a sentimental connection to Sanity because when they came back in 2009 at, um, at Hampton, I was able to get tickets for the third night and they opened with Sanity. And I remember having the feeling in the moment, they really are back. Like they're really digging everywhere into their repertoire, into any song that they want that they've ever played. They're liable to bring it up. That was something that was different about 3.0 compared to 2.0. And I remember thinking at the time, one of the songs, Sanity is one of the songs that's up there with, say, Harpua, Doglog. Big black furry, uh, big ba- big black furry creatures that signify the band is having a fun time, and they Buffalo want you Bill, to also. You know, Buffalo is another Bill, one. yeah. Again, like you hear, you hear any one of those songs at a show, Iculus, um, yeah. and it's a very special experience that needs to be cherished for a while. Camel Walk was in that same vein. If they, yeah, if they for played a long time. Camel Walk, then things were. It was one of those nights, uh, and, and they you know, repeat San- the melody of Sanity over and over again. At the end of this track, at the level, really video. cool, really, really like cool. a really cool little like ambient outro. Paige and Trey and Mike all getting in on it, like they were kind of feeling out what they wanted to do next. So they were just like living in the moment of this sanity that they had just played for the first time. This was the first version since that Halloween show you referenced in '96. Oh, okay, so there were zero in '97 and, uh, and zero in '98 up till this point. So uh, it must be fun for them too. Yeah, to, they get to milk to it. dust it off. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then of course it goes into the tweezer. <laughs> yeah, right, which is a very, very good tweezer. I described it as squishy funk at about eight minutes with Trey beginning to lead the way. He mostly noodles through it, but another groove develops at around nine minutes. It doesn't mm-hmm. last, and they go with a lot of straight-ahead rock jamming. I wasn't complaining because by 11 minutes, and this is the part that I would rewind, rewind over and over again when Trey is just finger-tapping, like all of a sudden he's in ACDC and not in Fish anymore. Mm -hmm. at around 11 minutes and there's just explosive rock music big power chords fishman is catching up with him i wrote down and this is the biggest compliment i think i can give to any fish jam some jamming that reminds me of live at leeds
Okay. Yeah, I know, you know what a big I know fan your of the affinity who for the who. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just oh. this big rock and roll at the end of Tweezer just sold me all the way. Love it. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing somewhere around like the, the 10 or 11 and a half minute mark. Um, Fish locks in on Trey. And, you know, Fish has been doing his own thing for a few minutes. Um, but I love those moments where Trey will kind of take something a little off tempo um, and Fish will lock into it and they'll kind of like, They'll kind of do like a like an alternative universe. It's just like a, a, a little bit sideways of what Mike and Pedro are doing, and then it all sinks back up. I love those moments where Fishman tra- uh, chases Trey, or vice versa. And there's a little bit of that in that tweezer jam, like you're talking about, as it exits the funk segment and gets into the more straight ahead rock. is relentless it doesn't stop it doesn't let up it doesn't have any mild sections there's no there's no moment during the tweezer where i felt like they were in a, a spot where they were looking at each other and communicating non-verbally to see where someone wanted to take the jam next the jam was just organically on the freeway on the go it's 60 miles an hour 70 miles an hour the entire time uh and then it ends there was a point where it, it, it sounded almost like it was going to end uh, in a version kin to um, into the picture of Nectar, how the old school oh, yeah, the uh, slow fall apart ending, where it slows and falls apart slowly. Um, and, it, and it doesn't quite do that, but it, it takes a little bit more of like that. It's, it's hard to describe it, a little bit more of like that sludgy sound where well, it's a game. there's it's, power chords. Yeah. It's a game between the members. It's almost like a challenge. Or it's like, I'm going to slow down this much, but still play. Can you do it? And then another band member might just play one short chord or Fishman might just tap the snare drum. And then it goes back to Trey or Gordon. Like, as like, how much slower can we get this, but still keep it as a song? And it's, it's really fun. It's like a bunch of little kids who are happy to be experts at their instruments. It, exactly. It, it, it just shows you how professional they are and how serious they were taking it. And, and yes, they joke around and yes, they're there to have as much fun as we are, but let's not, you know, confuse ourselves here. Uh, they took that very fucking seriously. Mm-hmm. And, and my goodness, they were, they were rewarding us with little bits like this, where this tweezer had segments of like all of the prior years of fish built, uh, you know, baked into it. Um, and it was really fun to be able to experience that in 1998, where you could, part of the jam might sound like 93 and part of the jam might sound like 97. Yeah, it's, um, and then some part of the jam might sound like 99, which hadn't even happened yet. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Lovely tweezer overall, big fan. You know, mid of the mid second set, day one, they're they're dropping tweezer. It's dark out, everybody's getting down. That's one thing I remember. I've got just bits and pieces of memory of being in the crowd throughout the sets. 
But during this tweezer, as I was wandering around from Mike's side, finding people and finding my space in life, really, because that's ultimately what I was doing in a microcosm was like finding my space in life. Um, as an 18 year old fish was just giving me what I needed, giving me the soundtrack to be able to feel confident in myself. And I'll always appreciate them for that. I'll always have a big place in my heart for that. I think what a lot of people needed came up next was a breather. Yeah. Which they nicely provided with the horse into silent. If you've heard one, you've heard most of them. Mm -hmm. And this is just exactly that. You know, I didn't really have many notes for it, except that this is beautiful set list placement. And this exact thing happened just last year. Yep. Yep. Same dates, right? As the Uh, We're very similar, but just like, I feel like anytime you're at a show and they're playing silent in the morning and, and they did play that venue the year before or something like that. There's always like that. Woo, yeah. Like people are going to, people are going to uh, yell out for that. And, and and all the emotions of last year will kick back in. And, and it, I'm glad they do it. I'm glad they do things like that. I'm glad they played silent in the morning because uh, even though I wasn't at the great wet, uh, a lot of the people around me at this festival were, and I was able to tap into their blissed out energy. To follow it up is Choctaw's Torture, which is, I started by saying a typical rocking high energy version. Mm -hmm. The band is perfect with setting up the flow of a set through song choice. Perfect. We just had a big, you know, a big, I don't know about exploratory, but rocking tweezer for sure. Horse into silent to, like we just said, take a mid-set breather. And now Choctaw's Torture, just bring it right back up again. They're, they're, it's like they're a four person conductor. And the crowd is the music. Absolutely. And this chalk dust, three, four minutes in, it's ripping. Sounds like a 93, 94 chalk dust. And then by about six, six and a half minutes in, they're just playing with themes and tempos. And they explore a couple of different little micro themes in this chalk dust, even though it's a relatively truncated version. It's under nine minutes, maybe. We all know that chalk dust doesn't need a whole lot of time in order to blow our minds. And this is one of those where... I always underestimated the end of this set. The Choctaw is an absolutely must hear. It's highlighted by a really great, like this descending segment from Trey and um, the band is obviously following along with him. And, and then it, it, you think it's going to wrap up and he takes it one more. Uh, he's obviously not ready to wrap the set up. Um, <laughs> I don't know if we thought this was going to end the set or not. You know, Choctaw can, can really be anywhere in a set list. It can yeah. open, it can be middle, it can close a set. You just never quite know. It's kind of like Cavern in that regard. Uh, it's interesting about those Picture of Nectar songs. They can just pop up anywhere. You know, this one wasn't slated to ultimately end the set, but it was super high energy. It kind of tapped back into, it kind of tapped back into a little bit of that energy that the Rita had. Um, yeah. And that was one thing I noticed. Like it, it, it wasn't a continuation of that jam at all, but it definitely, it definitely had hints of that uh, expression where it was, what do we call them? Bliss jams, like type A type jams now that are just, uh, you know, major chord stuff.
Absolutely. And it also had more of what you said you loved during that Reba, the Trey and Fishman routine of the cat and mouse game. Mm -hmm. It shocked us, did. Oh, man, those two, uh, (laughs) we all know. Like, yeah, yeah. you could listen to Trey and Fish chase each other around to be perfectly content for an entire night. Just listen to anything from 1993. Yeah, exactly. And you're in. And they closed the whole set with Slave to the Traffic Light, which is a classic set closer, especially at a festival. You mentioned earlier the timing of the day by this point the light the um the sun is certainly down oh yeah it's nothing better than at a festival with what 65 or seventy thousand other people during slave the blue lights probably red and blue lights the band is just doing what they normally do during slave slowly building in volume and intensity and trade takes over the lead and man by the end around eight minutes i wrote down it is taken over yeah, and there was a pretty sizable there was a pretty sizable glow stick war during the slave. I remember as well. I was trying to remember back if there was one during the tweezer. I, there probably was. I don't recall, but I remember specifically during the slave at the time. It was the largest glow stick war I had ever seen. Um, I won't give too much of a spoiler, but there was something the next night that we'll talk about in a few mm-hmm. minutes that that kind of eclipsed that. But it, it they were just seemingly hundreds of these things bursting open, almost like a blowhole like a spout of a whale just like straight up and just like raining down on people and to be in the top corner of the country far away from everybody you know one thing we didn't talk about is when fish played limestone in maine they were the biggest city in the state at that That's time right. they were Every bigger time than portland yeah, yeah bigger the more people in limestone than in portland for that moment so you literally are like what's going on in maine at that time and it's hard to not like wax nostalgic about that and the, you know this was 98 was really the end of the of the the beautiful bounty of the glow stick experience um and you know, people might have people might have times in their lives where glow stick hit them. Maybe they're soured about that. But I can assure you, at this point in 1998, uh, the glow sticks were were still very much welcomed and and appreciated by the band. And people weren't throwing them on stage at that point yet. And um, and they were just really something to behold. The, the great glow stick wars of 97 to 98 were um, <laughs> were really just just an experience outside of anything I'd ever had I just, before. I just like the phrase "the great glow stick wars." It's like in Star Wars when they talk about right. the Clone Wars. You were with my father in the Clone Wars, like oh, you exactly. were a part of the glow stick wars. <laughs> Hell yeah, you know, back before people got all wild and throwing them at the band. Like, uh, here's a PSA: don't throw stuff on stage. Yeah, Bottom obviously, line. it should you know? be obvious, right? Hi, everybody. Brian here to welcome you to the set break of today's episode of Attendance Bias. First, thank you for listening. And second, just a quick reminder to tell you that even though Attendance Bias comes to you for free, it does take a lot of work and it does take quite a bit of money to keep the lights on here at production. So I just wanted to ask a small favor if you could support the podcast in any number of the following ways. If you could leave a review or a rating of it on whichever podcast app you use. If you could spread the word telling a friend or someone you think may be interested in it about it. Or probably the most concrete way is to go to www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendance bias and donate however much you can financially to help with the continuing costs of attendance bias. So thank you again so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. Set two. And then day two, set two, opens with what I would consider my favorite jam of at least the songs we're going over today with Down With Disease. You know, the pretty, the prototypical second set opener. Uh, Fishman, I like that he's warming up with a bunch of drum rolls to start, because whenever you see backstage footage of Fish. 
Fishman is always practicing. He's the one. I mean, Trey always has his guitar around his neck, but Fishman always has a drum pad. He's always practicing. He's always staying loose. And so when they do the big feedback or ambient noise to open down with disease, Fishman is, of all people, really straightforward, just playing drum rolls. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really kind of a typical way to start the set because they come out and, and again, not having a visual memory of seeing the band. Okay. So the Lemon Wheel, they decided to, I want to say, not do the giant video screens. Oh, really? And so like they, they had them at the other festivals, but they didn't have them at the Lemon Wheel. So couldn't really see the band if you were at a certain section back from the stage. Um, and so if they were talking to each other about what they were going to choose to open with, that would make sense while he was doing those drum fills. Um, and Trey plays a note or two to my ear. Sounds like maybe he thought about opening up with character zero. And then obviously Mike steps up and, and starts his bass effect. And it, it's very clear at that point, like they had decided that they were mm-hmm. going to choose down with disease, uh, which folks that went to the great went can remember day two, set two, and limestone that set opens up with down with disease. Apparently, that's just how it rolls. I'm sure there were more than a few people who who had that thought of uh, what year am I? Is is this yeah. am I in a deja vu? Is this just all happening to me all over again? Um, and so, yeah, the jam is uh, the jam is massive. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. Yeah, it starts with like any other mid '90s down with disease, very piano heavy, a lot of guitar soloing, but a very smooth guitar tone, to your point from earlier. Uh, Fishman just, it would, well, Trey and Fishman both, just ahead of the beat, with Mike really just holding down the rhythm. So it's a very typical Down With Disease start, which means it's awesome, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wrote from eight minutes and 30 seconds to about nine and a half minutes. It's melodic insanity. The stuff fishy dreams are made of. them developing their new sound yes 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 at 12 minutes it's kind of a mashup between 97 funk and ambience and space tone i wrote whatever that means Uh, and but yeah that's the sound of 1998 and with a sprinkling of 99 just like a garnish of it it's lovely to look back and listen back in retrospect and um and see the band's evolution in real time and this is one of those moments and and somewhere in that time period, you mentioned 12, 13 minutes in, they lock in on a groove. I'm sure you recognize, or I'm sure you, you noticed a groove. I don't know. To me, it, it, it's always sounding like they are in like a full on band tease jam of bomb track by Rage Against the Machine. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's bum, 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 bum. bum, 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 bum. 
really sounds like that to me. Like Summer of Covers, here's Fish teasing Raised Against a Machine, probably in this Down with Disease. Um, and again, after that section of the that prominent little jam that that's in around like the 12 to 14 minutes, um, then they start to really kind of get back into what they were doing prior to that. There's a point where it almost sounds like it's practice room style looseness. Um, yeah, it's so funny are, you say that. Yeah, I'm, they're I don't mean to it. cut you off. No, please. But do. I'm so I'm thrilled you said that. One of my notes is at 16 minutes they sound more comfortable with each other than most bands I've ever heard. as if they're doing call and response, but with 16 different iterations because every two band members are listening and playing against one another. Just that feeling of comfort and the, that feeling between them, you're so correct. You're so right. They're just so hyper-tuned and hyper-focused on listening to each other. They're more focused on listening to each other and complimenting each other in that regard than they are on flooding the zone with their own notes. And to hear a jam that's 15, 16 minutes in, that's that's developing a sound by a, a, a bunch of guys that are so clearly uh, in love with what they do for their career, which it's weird to think about like fish music as being their career, but let's yeah, it's a job. It is. yeah, it's their job. It's not a job to them in that moment because they are, uh, they're sharing a mind, they're sharing a brain um, and they're creating just like really beautiful, the soundtrack to like the weekend to the summer to the last few years of Fish's experience, um, it was a lot for me to take in. Uh, this whole set, I listened to two or three times in the past week. And, you know, I tried to pinpoint where my favorite moments are. And in this section of like 15 to 19 minutes or whatever, of the Down With Disease definitely classifies mm -hmm. as just uh, about as locked in as the band as you're going to find in 1998. I agree. 100%. Uh, toward the end, it becomes more like slow stop-start jamming. And then they eventually, very gradually, transition into Piper, back when Piper had its customary slow introduction. Uh, it's really, I looked at the clock, it was about three minutes before Piper proper kicks in, before the song mm -hmm. itself gets going. Uh, it really builds up ahead of steam. And then by seven minutes, I just wrote, it's a usual good Piper. It's almost the same sort of way that a Horse Into Silent, it played the same role. Piper is obviously a much more aggressive, fast, fun song, but it wasn't really anything outstanding in the way that Down With Disease and the upcoming Ghost will be. It's kind no, of an in-between. You're right. And there were, you know, in 1998, in late 1997, they had ex they had explored Piper a little bit deeper than this particular version. Um, but again, it's 
relatively flawless. And mm -hmm. there's, there's something about Piper. We were talking about this last night. Um, there's something about Piper where all of a sudden the lyrics are just on you with the older versions because the intro is so delicate and so elongated and so, and so beautiful. It's very piano heavy, the intro, um, which I, I love. I'm sure we all do. Um, and I, you know, not so controversially, probably like I prefer these pipers to the chaos of today and, oh, and through 3.0 and 4.0 and where the intro is the song. And then, you know, the five chords, whatever that they're playing that they slowly build up, um, you know, they, they peak, but the intro could often be five, six, eight, 10 minutes long. And um, to me, that's, that's fish during this time period. Like Piper isn't a, a perfect uh, encapsulating like tune for what, what they were going for. And the way, like I was saying, how the lyrics just kind of sneak up on you. And then before you know it, you're like, I didn't even hear the song start. And the lyrics <laughs> are just like fading in. Uh, Piper's really flowy and 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 uh, and kind of sneaky like that in a way. I, I guess sneaky is the word I was looking for. Uh, because all of a sudden this. you're needing to. When you in. listen, when you listen to Piper, do you try to sing all three parts at the same time in your head uh, to yourself? <laughs> I think usually I just think uh, words are the words I sailed upon. I stick with those lines. I, uh, okay. uh, and that's what keeps me grounded. As long as I know where my part is to jump in, I don't lose my mind. Um, it's, it's easy to do. And and of course, sometimes I want to lose my mind at fish. Uh, yeah, of course. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. But yeah, I, I, it's funny you asked that. Just a couple I, of times. Was I singing it earlier to myself when I was on my dog walk? You bet your ass I was. Yeah. <laughs> His words are the words I sailed upon. Heck yeah. <laughs> After Piper is Ghost, and I forgot, we've been talking so much about their playing and their communication musically. I forgot how in tune their vocal harmonies were back in 1998. This mm -hmm. is as good as any, uh, well, the studio track of ghosts like i don't say this often but fishman's voice is perfect yeah on this it really you know, is it, there's like even a weird vocal jam during the pause and of course they botched the re-entry uh but it, their vocals are really really impressive for sure and you mentioned it being on on point like the the ghost album and and mike's little bass solo that that takes place in the introduction of the song's lyrics um is exactly kind of in line with what they were doing on the album version at that point. Um, mm. And also for me, um, I hadn't seen Ghost since 1997 at this point. Had I, oh no, I did. I saw, I saw the Ghost on the Island tour, but this was the first Ghost I saw that had the, the delay loop intro. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, Ghost had changed by summer 98. It, it didn't just go straight into the song. It wasn't so funk induced. It was going to be more of this, it was going to be more of this like complex type of, uh, all four parts jam where it's going to be melodic and less chaotic. And, and that's exactly what this jam was. It was so fucking melodic.
there are points where, you know, you're just experiencing genius on stage. My best memory of this ghost was that uh, I just didn't want it to end. You know, down with disease, Piper Ghost, and I was like, I would be fine if they just played this for like the next hour, and this is a three song set. <laughs> and it almost—I don't want to say it almost didn't end. That sounds a little silly, but it seemed like it was three or four different songs or three or four different jams within this piece. Toward the end, you know, we brought up the Beastie Boys at length earlier with Sabotage. I thought that around 15 minutes, it sounded close to jams from the In Sound from the Way Out. You know, their Ooh. instrumental album. it's not that far from it. I don't know if I would have loved it when I was 16 years old, if I were there, but it plays to my sensibilities. Now it's kind of show offy and jazzy at the very end. Exactly. And that's a great way of describing it as jazzy. And of course, as we all know, that was not really what ghost was delivering at all. Ghost was more of a in your face type of, this is going to be the best jam of the show, potentially kind of song since its inception. And yeah. this was a, to me, to my ears, a, a totally atypical version that would be less atypical as the rest of the year and the next year went on. Oh yeah. Um, again, you can, again, it, we've talked about this before, but the evolution of their sound was really coming to a head at the end of this tour because they took some time off. And when they came back in the fall, the majority of their sound was more like this and less like 97. Yeah, very much so. There's much more defined. Yeah, uh, absolutely. and then after that, after Ghost is Fluffhead, and my first thought is this is like a very top heavy set, lots of jamming, and this is a big boy set list. Yeah, I mean, can you go wrong with Down with Disease, Piper, Ghost, Fluffhead? I, I, right, come on. like it's a, it's like a joke here. It's like an embarrassment of riches, right? Yeah, yeah. This is like Michael Jordan in '96. This is top choice, top show. And the Fluffhead, um, as I was, as I, I teased a little earlier, was still probably to to my experience the the greatest most extreme glow stick war i'd ever experienced at life i feel like there was a point you know they get through the song they get through the sections and right as they were about to like peak the lyrics the second time at the end of the song there must have been like five or six people and it, it felt like each of them had a couple hundred glow sticks and they just <laughs> burst like a thousand of these things just happened to like burst up it definitely caught the band's attention. And then the band shreds the outro to Fluffhead uh, beyond the vocal section. Yeah. Like just kicking ass and taking no names. Like, fuck you. We're going to, this is an exclamation point on this set. 
And honestly, the set could have ended there. I don't think anybody would have really complained. I mean, those four songs were over an hour, you know? Yeah. Um, Fish wasn't doing that at their festivals at that time. They were playing long sets. So I don't think anybody expected it to end. Super special moment seeing Fluffhead, which is one of my all-time favorite Fish songs. It was the first time I had ever seen it. And, oh, wow. Um, That's great. That's just, fun. You don't, you don't forget those moments, uh, especially when they're shrouded in, in such mystique, like a glow stick war and, and you're there with your friends and you're just like basking in the moment. The music is fucking perfect. Of course, like Fluffhead wasn't perfect, but um, to my ears at that time, it was, you know, yeah, of course. And, and they play it so fast that you don't even notice for the no. most part. You know, I wrote that it's um, for the most part, it was a standard Fluffhead. But by that, I mean, perfectly executed. Yeah, There are if you're listening for the for flaws, you will hear them. But for the most part, you're not. You don't. And songs like this and Reba goes back to what I said earlier. They need that speed for me to still get excited by them. Yeah. You know, when, when they're they playing at half speed, I don't really, you know, I'm okay going to the bathroom. You know, it's insane. 16 year old me would yell at 40 year old me to say, go into the bathroom during Fluffhead, you asshole. But when they play it as slow as they do these days compared to what they used to play it, I've seen it. It's all right. I wrote that I, there were guitar pyrotechnics by 13 minutes. To your and, point earlier, it's and they they maybe they needed to play it at those speeds in order to like get off on it at that time still and and again if they're gonna play a really complex song like Fluffhead Fugue Bass with all of the sections uh, you know for me I personally love the Chase into Bundle of Joy mm-hmm. like those two sections of the song and that rips like that's just prototypical fish just killing it for you in a festival setting and. You know, and you can't like overlook the, the festival aspect of this. Like, there's nowhere to drive. Everybody's where you are. <laughs> We've all like lived in this small little makeshift city for the last couple of days. Like, we're all in this together. Um, it's a different vibe than a normal show. It just, it just is. And um, you know, and I saw a couple of other fish festivals after this, and um, you know, obviously Cyprus notwithstanding, because it was special in its own way. None of them ever really lived up to the the hype and to the experience of what I had at the London. After Fluffhead, we finally get a breather, finally in this set, with When the Circus Comes to Town, I think the band's best performed cover in this era, at least. You know, it sounds so soulful. I think Trey said somewhere in an interview that if he wishes he could have written any song they cover, it would have been this one. And that comes through. And honestly, like, when I think of Circus, this is the version I think of. This mm-hmm. is probably my favorite version of the song I've ever heard and definitely the favorite version I've ever seen live. Trey's guitar is so emotive and it gave me chills listening to it. Like it brought me right back. Uh, his tone is perfect. His phrasing is perfect. There's no botch notes. It's just the pinnacle version of When the Circus Comes to Town after the run of four songs that preceded it was almost too much to handle. Like, uh, do I even deserve this? Yeah. I'm sure. I'm sure it felt like you were there for a special reason. They followed up with Waiting in the Velvet Sea, which is kind of like a double breather. Mm-hmm. Uh, another case, though, of their harmonies being perfectly spot on. The guitar solo, I had a thought listening to this Velvet Sea, and I've listened to you know a million of them, that I had never heard before. I thought that this was not unlike a Pink Floyd guitar solo at the end. That's it's how so beautiful, str- right? It's so beautiful. It's soaring.
whole band is locked in. Paige is laying down his his rhythm, and and Mike is right there too. And um, and I was shocked at how incredible this version is. And maybe part of that is its placement, because it's not in the encore. It's not at the end of a set. It's in the middle of this wild set after um, a ballad. At, right after a ballad, like. Um, but of course, they did just play for an hour and five minutes nonstop, dropping bombs on our heads from down with the beast of fluffhead. So if they want to take twelve or thirteen minutes and chill out, great. And I have no, I have nothing bad to say about these two selections back to back. And in the moment, it just felt really right because I did use this time to explore and use the restroom and to 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 see a new spot. And I'm glad I changed my perspective inside the venue because when I came back from my little journey, we had you know meandered our way into. Uh, what came next, which was well, hold your head up, waiting uh, sexual healing, and hold yeah. your head up. And the first thing I thought was maybe I should take back all those compliments about their vocal harmonies being <laughs> so great. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, so the hold your head up is notable because it's one of the coolest hold your head up intros there ever was. Trey even mentions at one point, uh, we can't stop. We can't. We found the groove. Yeah. Like, he says it's sorry, a fishman, fish. yeah. Sorry, fish, you know, and Mike and, and and Paige are like laying down this fun little pocket and like Trey's leading the jam, this hold your head up little jam groove by like he bring it down with the drum beat and then he like kicks it back in and they're 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 both Mike and Paige are both totally just following Trey's lead, who I'm sure is just fucking with fishmen the entire time of like, no, we're not gonna dip into your song yet. We're gonna keep playing the song you hate. Um, <laughs> and Fishman even comes out and says, you know, this is a love song about a turtle. And then there's, this is the part I wanted to talk about. I don't know if you heard it on the tape, but Trey jokingly chimes in with prison joke. Did you hear that? Oh, no, I didn't hear that. So Trey's calling for the prison joke (laughs) during this HYHU, which is wild. And talk, we're not going to get into that here. Um, No, but obviously, if you want to do your research on like the prison joke and what that is, like there are a couple of shows where Fishman does tell the prison joke and it's a not safe for work type of experience. Um, and really funny to me that uh, that set had Trey referencing the prison joke. And then Paige, Paige is the one that changed the song up. Paige is the one I think that wanted to do sexual healing instead. Paige is all uh, business. Yeah, for sure. And he's like, you know what? We played Terrapin a hundred times already. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted time to shine here. And sexual healing. Uh, you know, they played it a couple of times in, earlier in the tour. Like we had got the tour extras, so we knew it had been played. But again, I don't think any of us expected it to be be dropped in that moment and and i was trying to think back i think this is during the phase where fishman was like running circular laps around the stage yeah while the yeah band was like you know and every time he'd come back to center he'd throw his arms up in glory and then he'd like duck back around and he'd like do it i can't i think that was 98 and 99 um and it sounds like that on the recording of uh they keep bringing it back and he him just in my vision of him just like popping up on the front of the stage throwing his arms up in the air like dude's having the time of his life man yeah oh he's soaking it up yeah. Uh, but after they're done with it, they close the set with Run Like an Antelope, which is fun because they're not necessarily done with sexual healing because they're teasing it throughout the intro. Uh, but they do get into it pretty quick. They get into Antelope pretty quick. And Paige especially is killing it on piano. And then uh, by six minutes, they're all on top speed. They are, it's you know, they're pure gasoline. Right. right? Yeah. All the and, way through the end of the song. They don't let up until like the till the breakdown um it's a there's a point where nine or ten minutes in where i was thinking today like holding on for dear life is how i would describe it um it's going 105 miles an hour 
and you're like halfway out of the car and you're like trying to, to make the turn. Like, that's what it yeah. feels like. Um, but they stop just, on the dime. They make the turn. Cause when they, they get they to know the where breakdown they are somehow like that, you know? yeah, it's incredible. They know, they know where they are throughout that chaos, that very controlled chaos. And it, it, it sounded more like a early nineties antelope than a late nineties antelope. Uh, and it's how it was compact in 13 minutes. But like, I don't care if it's 13 minutes, if it's going to deliver a punch like that, holy shit, what a way to end the set. Bob Weaver makes his appearance again. He holds the long spike, you know, and as a throwback to some of the 95 experiences and uh, just blissed out. Like I've seen Antelope end some really great sets. And this was one of them that that I'll always remember. So Joseph, thank you so much for coming back on Attendance Spies, for sharing your experience. I felt like I was in the crowd sometimes, like I was at a festival. You really did transport me. It was it was a nice break after a pretty long, rough day. So thank you for doing that. Before we uh, close it out, though, I wanted to ask you, because we covered the second set of each day of the Lemon Wheel, for our listeners, if you had to recommend one other set from the weekend, which one would it be? Okay. To me, that's pretty easy. That would be set three, night two. It comes out and opens up with sabotage. Just holy fuck. And then <laughs> just the 2001 is is underrated. I mean, every every 98 2001 is worth hearing, but that one is particularly inspired. And then I think it's Wilson Mango song. So, I mean, again, we're talking about all the songs you want to hear in a row. Um, do yourself a favor and, and check out set three, night two. There's a, there's a couple of other jams worth hearing. I feel like we didn't talk about the David Bowie. Uh, that's got like a nine minute intro on night one and the, the city's week groove to end set one that day is also worth hearing just a, a couple of blurbs. But, you know, if you really want to get a feel for what the lemon wheel is all about and you want to truncate that, you can, you can narrow it down to the set twos. Beautiful. Thank you again so much for coming on, for transporting all of us back to the lemon wheel in 1998. Joseph, thanks again, man. I can't say it enough. Brian, always a pleasure. Um, maybe sometime in the next five or 10 years, we can get together and we can do the set ones and the set threes. Who knows? We'll make this a long-term goal of ours. Um, but I appreciate you having me on and I look forward to supporting your podcast in the future. And, uh, and I love listening every week. So thank you to everyone else who guests on this podcast. It's really exciting for someone like me to get to have that little fix of fish in my life. Um, and, and I really get off on hearing all of your stories as well. So please keep them coming. And that's it for today's episode with Joseph Rosenberg. But when you get two big fish nerds in a room together, there are going to be some mistakes and checkups. So now it's time for the attendance bias fact check. Attendance bias fact check. When Joseph mentioned the, quote, beginnings and rumblings of this podcast on our special message board that I spoke about with Damon, he is referring to the episode with guest Damon Callisto, where he and I talked about the fish message board Oceans of Osiris, as well as Fish's show from October 8th, 1995 at the Adams Fieldhouse in Missoula, Montana. Joseph said that his most recent fish shows were in Eugene, Oregon in October of 2021. Those shows were at the Matthew Knight Arena on October 19th and 20th. Joseph's dream venue, the Sydney Opera House, has a capacity of 5,738 people, so get your tickets now. During the lightning round, Joseph said that he would time travel back to Fish's Great Woods Game Hen show on July 8, 1994. 
That show was reviewed by Jeff Goldberg on a previous Attendance Bias episode. That episode is one of the top five most played ones of Attendance Bias, so go back and give it a listen. Sabotage by the Beastie Boys is on Ill Communication, which was released in 1994. The California Love Tweezer that Joseph mentions is from the summer of 1998. Specifically, it's from July 15, 1998 in Portland Meadows. It was also released as Live Fish Volume 15. In reference to Limestone, Maine, Fish did play the wedge to open up Day 2 of The Great Went on August 17, 1998. Joseph quizzed me on the spot about how many times Sanity was performed between 1993 and 1998, as he said it was performed four times. Those times were April 29, 1994 at the Boatyard Village Pavilion in Clearwater, Florida, June 24, 1994 at the Murat Theater in Indianapolis, December 31, 1995 at Madison Square Garden, I can't believe I didn't say that one, and the one I did guess, October 31st, 1996 at the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank Joseph Rosenberg for coming back on Attendance Bias. I'd like to thank Fish.net for its help with the fact check and Fish.in for the recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by visiting www.buymeacoffee.com slash attendancebias and donating anything you can. You can also follow Attendance Bias on social media. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.